With LinkedIn Jobs, we tap into a network of more than a billion professionals to help you find quality professionals quickly and easily for any role you need. Marketing wizards? Found them. Software engineers? Found. That project manager I could never seem to hire? And found. LinkedIn Jobs quickly matches your roles with candidates with the right skills and experience. In fact, 86% of small businesses get a qualified candidate within 24 hours. Post your first job for free and get started at linkedin.com slash spoken. That's linkedin.com slash spoken. Terms and conditions apply. Hi, it's Brendan here. Before we kick off with this episode, which features a brilliant conversation with the lockdown rebel Lionel Shriver, I just want to say a really big thank you to everyone who has donated to Spiked over the past few weeks. It really makes a big difference to our ability to carry on providing reasoned commentary in the COVID-19 era. I know times are tough for many people, so thank you for your support. And if you haven't made a donation yet and you like what we're doing, then please consider supporting Spiked today. If you think it's important to have an alternative voice in times of conformism and authoritarianism, then we would really appreciate your support. Spiked is free. All our articles, essays and podcasts are free to access and we want to keep it that way. And you can help us to keep it that way by making a donation. One-off donations are great and always hugely appreciated, but regular donations are even better. Even £5 a month, the cost of a newspaper and a cup of coffee can make a huge difference to our work. So to support Spiked today, just go to www.spiked-online.com and hit the big red donate button. That's www.spiked-online.com and hit the big red donate button. Now on with the show. We are now being coached to regard anyone else, including our friends, as sources of lethal contagion. People are to be avoided. Socializing has become a form of evil. I actually find going out and buying something something of a relief because however nominally I get to interact with somebody. And now even those small interactions are very cold. It's not just the masks and the gloves. People don't smile at each other. They're very wary and often just actively hostile. It's a horrible world to be living in. Hello and welcome to The Brendan O'Neill Show with me, Brendan O'Neill. This is a podcast in which an esteemed guest joins me to talk about the big ideas, the bad ideas, the problems and the controversies of life in the early 21st century. Of course, we are currently recording this podcast during an almost global lockdown, and today's guest has a few things to say about that. I am delighted to be joined by Lionel Shriver. Lionel is a best-selling novelist and a commentator. She writes a column for The Spectator, and she was the first ever guest on The Brendan O'Neill Show back in September 2018. We're very excited to have her back. The Washington Post once said that if Jodie Pico has her finger on the zeitgeist, then Lionel Shriver has her hands around its throat. Who better to have on to discuss the lockdown and its many discontents? Lionel, I want to start by asking you about the new world we all live in, specifically about the lockdown. And you have talked about the supine capitulation to a police state that has happened in the UK over the past few weeks. Do you think it's that bad? Do you think it's not only so bad that we have a police state but it's even worse because everyone has capitulated to it in a rather craven fashion. I think it's pretty depressing. I've come across in more than one article and a reference to how free-thinking and independently-minded we think of the British people. And I don't think that this situation bears that out. Mm. Uh, I, I think there have been, there's been research into especially the English attitude to authority and the the english in particular they capitulate to authority they they obey the law for the law's sake and i'm you know this runs completely counter to my own inclinations because i'm afraid i have a very deep set fuck you impulse 
<laughs> I don't like being told what to do. And most of all, I, I want people to justify when they tell me what to do. I don't do things just because that's the law. I do them because it's, it's the smart and, and right thing to do. And there hasn't been enough questioning on the public uh, part, especially as to whether or not these lockdowns are even epidemiologically sensible. So on that point, that's a very useful point to, to break into the next part of the discussion about the lockdown, because you are a bit of a lockdown skeptic, as am I, and you've just said that you don't like being told what to do, certain, at least uh, particularly rather when there isn't a good justification for it. So in your view, where is the lacking justification for the lockdown? Why does the lockdown not add up in your view? I don't think it makes a lot of sense once the virus has spread generously in the population already. There's plenty of evidence that the virus does continue to spread, even if you do have a lockdown. And most of all, what we're doing is just dragging the period of infection out. And I think that a lot of epidemiologists will back that up. So rather than reducing the absolute number of infections and absolute number of deaths, you simply make them occur over a longer period of time. And I think you could argue that that's actually socially destructive. And as long as your healthcare system can handle a higher rate of infection, which our NHS could do right now, then it's probably better to get it over with. Hmm. One thing that you've raised, and I've seen a few people, not nearly enough, I've seen a few people raise this point, which is the absence of those kinds of voices from the mainstream media. So as you point out, there are actually epidemiologists out there who do hold the view that the idea that you can lock a disease away in a cupboard and it will disappear is completely, complete idiocy and is completely unworkable and only puts off the inevitable, which is that the disease will become part of the family of diseases. Those voices are not being heard as much as they might be, and certainly not in terms of uh, parity in relation to the other more terrifying voices. What have you made of the broader media culture around this discussion of the virus and the lockdown? Well, the media is worse than the public. And of course, the media is also controlling the public to a degree. I've been especially appalled by how little of a dissenting voice ever appears on television. You know, the Newsnight, Channel 4, I, I force myself to suffer through both programs on a nightly basis. And uh, I mean, was, I was really struck last night on Channel 4. This wasn't even a story. It was just a little statistic that they flashed up on the screen. And it was that we are expecting 1.5 billion people, which is, they were careful to clarify, half the workforce of the entire world to have no source of livelihood. And that was just a little fact. And then we went back to the situation in uh, care homes in the UK, which took up most of the rest of the broadcast. It's as if it was incidental. This never gets any attention. Much less does any dubiety amongst the scientific community about the wisdom of treating this disease completely differently than we treat any other disease. Nor do I ever see any comparative statistics aired on television news, and you rarely find them in newspapers either, putting the deaths in context, both in context of how many people die every year in certain countries and worldwide anyway, and also how many people die of other diseases routinely. Mm. I mean, just to make sure I had something to say today, I uh, spent five minutes online before our interview and found out that in 2017, this is pretty routine, the number's been coming down, actually. The number of people who have died of malaria in, in that year was 620,000 people. That is almost all in Africa. We totally ignore it. Now, that's three times the number of people who died of COVID-19 so far worldwide. But it's just ordinary. They live with it. Hmm. 1.5 million people in 2018 died of TB. And TB is especially dangerous because it's developing a resistance to our treatment to it. Hmm. 
So it's actually, I would say, is more terrifying than COVID-19. Again, forget about it. Typhoid, which we think of as a disease of the past, still kills up to 160,000 people a year. And mind, you know, that's coming close to the COVID statistic. Cholera, same, about 140,000 people. And influenza, which, you know, COVID resembles in many ways, globally up to 650,000 people every year. Now, it took me five minutes to find those statistics. Why don't I ever see them? Yeah, excellent point. And I I want to come back to the question of death, in fact, in a moment, because you've written very interestingly about the naivety about death or the immaturity about death in relation to COVID, but more broadly too. But I, I want to just for a moment go back to a point you made there, which I think is incredibly important, which is about the the incidental nature of the unprecedented economic collapse that the world is heading for. Because I've noticed that too, where in the media and in, in lots of political discussion, the predictions of historically unprecedented contraction of economic life is treated either as incidental or as significantly less important than COVID-19 itself. And you give the example of 1.5 billion people losing their livelihoods in some way. Of course, in the UK, it's now being predicted that this will be a 13% drop in national output, which will be the largest contraction ever recorded. Why do you think that stuff is being pushed aside? I mean, part of me thinks it's some kind of COVID-related madness where they cannot see the broader picture. Or do you just think they, they can't let anything get in the way of the COVID politics of fear narrative that they are currently pushing? Well, madness is the word, but it is it is a shared hysteria. We're dealing with an international hysteria. You hear that word unprecedented all the time. There's nothing unprecedented about the virus itself. Mm. It's very much like lots of other viruses and lots of other illnesses. And in fact, it's less deadly than many other illnesses that we've had to w- learn to live with, some of which we have cured. What's unprecedented is our reaction to the lockdown. And it's the reaction that is causing the inevitable economic depression slash forthcoming collapse. All right. That's, that, that's the level of economic failure we're, we are dealing with. But it's as if the, the, the disease has caused the collapse, right? All that economic mm-hmm. fallout is just the inevitable fallout of this terrible illness. It has nothing to do with the illness. It has everything to do with our reaction to it. And we've never done this before. We've never said, oh my God, there's a contagious disease, which, you know, we've been dealing with contagion since we have been walking upright. So we have to close down whole countries and we have to close them down and not let anyone go anywhere or do anything or produce anything until the disease isn't here anymore. And with these kinds of contagious diseases, you can't just wait. I mean, if you're going to wait for it not to ever be there anymore, then you're going to wait forever. Hmm. right? And that's what's really dangerous about the government's change of strategy, since it used to be, oh, we have to flatten the curve to save the NHS. And then as soon as we saved the NHS, there we were in lockdown. Well, we need a new purpose for the lockdown, right? Instead of saying, Oh, good. We achieved our purpose. Let's get out of here as soon as possible. And of course, the other thing that's happened is that the people have been so successfully brainwashed that it's getting very difficult to unbrainwash them. So it's going to be difficult to get people to go back to work. And also, it's one thing to open restaurants again. It's another thing to convince people that they want to go out to eat. And furthermore, these um, rubbish laws are going to look as if they're going to be virtually indefinite. Mm. And many of these laws are going to make it impossible to run a successful business, a profitable business, even if the business is allowed to open. And if you think about it, if you have a restaurant and everyone has to be two meters apart, then how do you serve enough people to pay your staff and pay your chefs and pay your food bill and most of all pay your rent. I mean, a lot of businesses are just, it's the whole model is not going to stack up. Mm. That, in, that also includes uh, various forms of production, you know, factories or 
you know, cutting up meat. You can't spread people out too much. The facilities don't allow for it. And therefore it cuts your productivity so much that you you can't make any money. Mm-hmm. And everyone is just dealing with all of these measures as if they're inevitable and it's just too bad and, and the, it's the fault of the virus. No, it isn't. It's the fault of rabid overreaction to the virus. Yeah. I found that one of the most frustrating aspects of this discussion where everything is treated as a natural phenomenon. Not only is the virus a natural phenomenon, but also all of the fallout, all of the collapse, all of that is an inevitable consequence of the disease, which I think is so incredibly dishonest. So on the one hand, they overreact in a kind of psychotic way and threaten to bring about an unprecedented economic collapse. And on the other hand, they abdicate their responsibility for that by suggesting that it's all down to some novel virus, which I think is just incredibly dishonest. Uh, But in relation to the blindness of the lockdown fanatics to the consequences of the decisions that they are taking and the actions that they are pushing through, that blindness, do you think there's a class component to that or a cultural component? Because you know, we know from experience of recent years that we live under elites that are rather cut off from ordinary people's experiences and beliefs. Do you think there's an element where there are some sections of society who are rather enjoying the lockdown because they can carry on working from home? The Deliveroo guys will still bring them their food. Uh, they live in nice houses and their blindness to the consequences of what they're doing or what they're supporting is driven by their distance from people who have to work, have to mix together and have to make a living. Oh, I do think there's a segment of the population that's having a wonderful time, you know, especially people who are being paid 80% of their salaries. Um, The irony being, of course, that they are paying themselves 80% of their salaries. (laughs) It's taxpayers' money. These are the same people who are heavy taxpayers. So they're going to end up having to pay their own furlough salaries in future. And yeah, I think for some people, this has turned into a kind of indefinite holiday. Mm. You, you, you don't have to work very hard. You don't have to get dressed for work. You can stay in your pajamas. You can sit in front of the computer and feel self-righteous about it. Mm. Right now, being incredibly lazy and unproductive is patriotic. Yeah. Right? <laughs> really, it's the best of all possible worlds in some, in some fashion. And and I think that there that this sector is going to be hard to move on to going back to normal, especially now that we're constantly informed that there that we can't go back to normal. Mm. You know, there's going to be a so-called new normal. Mm. One of those expressions that we all now have learned to hate. I want to ask you exactly about the new normal in in a moment, but on the the economic stuff, just for, for one moment, on the economic catastrophe that people must surely know is coming. One of the striking ways in which they justify their blindness to this situation or justify the acceptability of what is about to occur is by making this very shallow propagandistic distinction between lives and the economy. So you will know from personal experience, as others do too, that anyone who questions the lockdown or the reaction to the virus is depicted as caring more about the economy than lives, caring more about profit than lives, hating old people and so on. But to make a distinction like that between how people live and economic life is completely false, right? I wouldn't want to rehash that whole argument because, uh, first of all, I think it's (laughs) self-evident. But we can't have a country without an economy. Mm. What's abstract about an economy is the word. An economy is anything but abstract. It's all the very literal, tangible things we do between ourselves that make high-density living possible. If we don't have an economy, we can't have a city, right? We're all grubbing on our own little patch of dirt trying to raise a stalk of corn, mm-hmm. right? we're doing that all by ourselves, then there's no economy. But if we're going to the supermarket to get popcorn, there's an, there better damn well be an economy. And th- this whole idea that you can shelter lo- human life and throw the economy into the toilet is, is, is patently ludicrous. 
You're listening to The Brendan O'Neill Show. If you like this podcast and Spike's other podcasts, and also the articles and essays that Spiked publishes every day, please think about giving us a donation. Spike's content is free and we want to keep it free, and donations really help us to do that. Head over to Spike's donation page now at www.spiked-online.com. Let's move on to the new normal, because I find this to be one of the most chilling phrases of the modern era, and it raises a number of questions in my mind. Um, The first one it raises is, who decides what the new normal is? And uh, already it's been taken for granted that the new normal will be, you know, a semi-permanent form of social distancing. Uh, staggered school days, um, you know, less flying. Environmentalists in particular are excited about the new normal and the possibility that it will involve less human production and behavior and travel and so on. What strikes you as particularly problematic about the idea of a new normal? And in your mind, shouldn't we be asking the question of who gets to define what is the new normal and whether there is going to be any kind of genuine open public debate about that? Well, the biggest thing that has happened is not that some of us has, have got sick, but that we have transferred a fantastic amount of power to the state. We have transferred the power to the state to tell us when we can leave our own house. Now, that's incredible. The thing is that when you give power away, it's really hard to get it back again. Therefore, this new normal is all about saying, well, sorry, you gave us the power to tell us what you can buy in the shops and when you can go places and whether we're going to educate your children it used to be an obligation. So uh, we're going to keep that power. We have even told you whether or not you can see your friends. And if you do see your friends, then you have to stay six and a half feet apart. The new normal was all about you gave up, you gave it up. You're not getting it back. And there must be some satisfaction on a bureaucratic level in bossing people around on this level. Just there has to be, or there would be more people who are saying, you know, can we look at this again? Does this make any sense? I think particularly these public health people Mm. are crazed with power. I, I really, this is their moment in the sun. It's usually kind of a small part of government. You know, that public health England, well, it's in the past, it's been spectacularly failed and, and, and it has been very petty, you know, and it loves coming up with uh, bossy little regulations, things they want to bring in for your own good, you know, taxing sugar and you thinking about uh, having fat taxes and that kind of thing. So they're already like that, Mm. but they've never had free reign to do whatever they want. And now, now they're really calling the shots and they give me the willies. Yeah. I mean, I, I wrote about this in a spectator column um, about three weeks ago that uh, in doing the research for my fourth novel, Game Control, I did research on the projections of how much AIDS in Africa was going to impact population growth. And the demographers all came to the conclusion in their studies that AIDS was going to have a negligible effect on population growth in Africa, which was going to continue to soar problematically. And the epidemiologists all said, oh, this is a terrible disease. We've never had anything like it. It's going to devastate the population of Africa. That population in Africa is going to go negative. It's going to start plummeting. Now, of course, it turns out that the demographers were right. But I thought that that, that illustrated, because uh, I, I tracked down about seven studies, and the vision was perfectly neat. People in certain fields, because it's their thing, they want whatever problem they study to be really terrible. Mm. It's not that they're evil people, but it's a kind of career ambition. You know, people who are epidemiologists get 
really excited by disease because that's that's their <laughs> business. And right now, the epidemiologists are center stage, and they don't often enjoy this position. And public health officials are center stage. They're very rarely in that position. It tempts everyone. First off, it tempts the epidemiologists to indulge alarmist scenarios, mm. and it tempts public health authorities to bring in draconian measures because it, in both parties' case, it makes them feel more important. Well, I'm a novelist, first and foremost. I'm not a statistician. I'm not even primarily by trade a, a, a comment writer, but it is my business to pay attention to what makes people tick. I've noticed the same thing that you've just described earlier about the relish with which some people in officialdom, particularly public health officials, have embraced the current crisis. You can almost hear it in their voices when they're on TV giving very strict instructions about the washing of hands or the touching of faces or how far you should stay away from people or whether you can sleep with your girlfriend or whether the kids of, you know, the kids of divorced parents can travel between houses. As you say, not only is this an unprecedented sacrifice of the most basic daily freedoms, you know, freedoms that we wouldn't even describe as freedoms because they're so taken for granted, you know, the right to go to the park or the right to meet your friend in a pub. Not only have they done that, but there's a relish among sections of society. You know, we've seen the police throwing people out of parks. We've seen them filming people from the skies. Public health officials are now, you know, loving their moment in the sun. Do you think it's exacerbated something that was already there in British society, which might as you said earlier, call into question the notion that this is as freedom a loving nation as it likes to think. This whole business of ratting people out mm. and for the good of all, supposedly, it has to do with that kind of prying, officious, judgmental relationship to your neighbor that you often see in terms of one's literal neighbor, the next door neighbor, the pe other people on your street, you know, the kind of prim tutting. So now you can be a busybody and a fuss budget and be sanctimonious about it. You know, this, this tendency, this police state thing, there's always a measure of the force that is just itching to be the big man on the block and ruin everyone's fun. I mean, I've really noticed lately that one of the things they're out for is anyone who seems to be having a good time. Hmm. There was a family in Norfolk, I think it was, uh, and they're all musicians, very um, accomplished musicians, uh, string players. And they first started playing in their own front garden uh, because they were asked to, to play something for somebody's birthday. And it was so popular that they started doing it every Sunday. And when they were in the midst of a Shostakovich piece, the police arrived and told them to stop because they couldn't have people gathering. And now, according to the article, the neighbors, even if they did come out of their houses, <gasps> <laughs> were practicing social distancing. And if you look at any number of things that, that have become a terrible thing to do, it, has, it makes absolutely no epidemiological difference. I mean, for example, sunbathing, with nobody around you within a hundred feet, and it, it it has already been documented that you know your chances of infection out of doors are very close to zero mm -hmm. anyway. Mm -hmm. Swimming in the ocean for pity's sake, <laughs> even if there's nobody else in sight, I can't think of anywhere where you're less likely to get infected with anything. Yeah, no, it it, it is shocking, deeply shocking, and deeply disturbing. When you were talking there about the uh, the conflict or the tension or the disagreements between demographers and epidemiologists in relation to AIDS and population growth in Africa, it got me thinking about one of the other key aspects of the current crisis, which is the role of science and the role of epidemiologists and the role of modelers and the role of other scientific experts. Because, of course, one of the problems we face is that so much of the stuff that's currently going on, which you and I and others are deeply concerned about, 
it tends to be justified on the basis of the science. And usually they put the before science to give it that kind of extra godly quality. But at the same time, what surely is being revealed by this, as has been revealed in other other situations in the recent past, is that science is not some fixed font of wisdom that can tell us exactly what we should do, but it is a kind of uh, an ongoing, falsifiable, changeable search for the truth. So to what extent do you think we should be worried about living in a society that is justified in terms of the science? They're not being scientific. Mm. These decisions are not being data-driven. They were made before any reliable data was really available. And also, decisions are not being reviewed and reviewed again and reviewed again in the way they should be if we were being guided by science rather than the science. Mm-hmm. You're right. I mean, science is just a method. And one of the most important things about science as a method is it's about facts. It's not about opinions. It's constantly trying to arrive at the truth, an unpoliticized truth. And it's often done through trial and error. Fields are constantly having to update their version of the truth, right? Because new information comes to light and the the field is obliged to change. And that's totally normal. It's healthy. It's what science does. It's what's good about it. I don't get the impression this is happening on a political level. Mm. To the contrary, I'm convinced that now that governments worldwide have committed to this lockdown strategy, despite the fact that we have never responded to any disease in the history of the universe in this fashion, they are not re-examining it in a scientific manner. Mm. The results are not being assessed in a scientific way because now we're committed to lockdowns. And that means that one of the things we're committed to is that they were the right thing to do. And that means it's going to continue to be the right thing to do. You can't question the methodology anymore in the way that a scientist would. And so we're constantly having politicians and even public health officials assert erroneously in a way that you absolutely cannot uh, in, in a scientifically valid way that the lockdowns are working and that they have brought infections way down mm. and have brought deaths way down. And you cannot make that assertion. It's just not scientifically valid. It often having to do with the fact that there's this three-week period between infection and hospitalization and prospectively death so that you, you see these curves start to flatten, start to go down before the effect of lockdown had any chance to take effect. And yet you still have people uh, submitting that, you, you know, it's working. Well, my, my general perspective on this is, that, and, and I, maybe I'll be proved wrong, more tragic things have happened in the universe. But I think that people are going to look back on this period with utter incredulity. Mm-hmm. It's going to be seen as as an act of worldwide hysteria, overreaction, and self-destruction. Mm. It's hard enough to keep an economy going with this many people in the world at the best of times without shooting yourself in the foot, if not in the head. Mm. It's a really important point about the ferocity with which the lockdowns were justified as, you know, absolutely essential to saving life. And we all had our part to do in the Uh, you know, the saving of lives and most importantly, the saving of the NHS, that I think as a consequence of that, it's going to be difficult for them to unravel the lockdown. Even as we hear, there are ministers in cabinet who would quite like to do that. I think once you unleash the politics of fear and marshal people to a, a fearful, atomized cause, it's quite difficult then to just put a stop to that. And that suggests that part of the new normal will be the continuation of some of these problematic trends, I think. It's not only politicians who are now invested in the lockdown. Yeah. It's also the people. Because after all, the people have made all these sacrifices. The people have gone through all these lockdowns. They've been obeying in the main all of these petty rules. Everyone hasn't enjoyed it. Nobody wants to think that these sacrifices were pointless, right? You want to feel that you're part of a larger upheaval in your nation uh, and even in the world, and you did your part. You you supported the forces of virtue, and 
whatever the fallout, it's too bad, but it, it, at least, you know, the nation came together and, and addressed its foe, just like in World War II. There's been a lot of World War II rhetoric around. Mm. So uh, no one wants to look back on that and say, oh, that was stupid, mm. right? It's diminishing, and it's a little embarrassing. I, I did a um, I did a radio interview about 10 days ago, and um, I was let go, actually, but I, I heard the caller after me complaining that that lady described the UK populace as brainwashed, and he thought that was insulting. Well, it is insulting. It is insulting to be vulnerable to being brainwashed, and nobody wants to regard themselves that way. It's not flattering. So it's much, much nicer to just go with the government's line that this was a necessity and it's too bad. And, you know, this was, this was just protecting the British people. And therefore, there's going to be a real battle after the virus has more or less subsided. There's going to be a battle still over whether or not the lockdowns were justified. And there's been almost universal investment in their having been justified. And only a few outliers like you and me have something to gain from at least looking back and say, well, you know, I told you so. Yeah. It's a rather dismal reward, actually. Yeah. (laughs) Considering that I'm going to be saying I told you so and sitting in the gutter. (laughs) (laughs) But no one else is going to be motivated to poo-poo this methodology. And also the the bigger danger, rather than just, you know, the delusion that we're encouraging, a kind of historical delusion. But there's a huge danger of installing this as now what we do when we have a new infection coming along. In the short and medium term, we now have this knee-jerk assumption that if there is a a rise of COVID fatalities or infection rates, however gentle, what do we do? We lock down again. We do what we never used to do, and then we, we just do it as a matter of course. And, you know, you've had some people, even like Nicholas Sturgeon, talking about how, well, we may have to, you know, constantly impose lockdowns one after another, you know, let them up and go try to run a business like that, right? Good luck to you. That's a politician talking, not, not someone who's ever run business. Yeah. So, but we just assume that. And I, I notice it again in the media when some politician refers to the inevitability of imposing the lockdown again, should uh, the case rate rise, the newscasters don't say anything. They don't say, well, why do we just assume that we're going to do that again? Mm. Right. Isn't it going to prove incredibly destructive? Why don't we come up with a different way of approaching it? And, and then in the long term, now we've got this incredibly self-destructive, response to contagion is this what we do now is this is this what we do all over the world that we just shut off the economy mm. because there are going to be more contagions it's just a fact of life that's a, an incredibly important point about the the fact that there is no motivation quite the opposite in fact for any real genuine open-minded reckoning with the lockdown contagion that spread from wuhan around the world. And that might become even more the case if, well, when the lockdown proves to be a pretty disastrous course of action to have taken, you can see that it would become even more the case that there would be a, a, no incentive whatsoever to have a genuine reckoning with it because it would have to be held onto as the justifiable thing because so many political media and intellectual forces have invested their energies into it as the good decent galvanizing thing to do so that's a point really worth making because it's it's worth prepping ourselves for a pretty difficult intellectual battle ahead i think i think it's very interesting if you look at the way what's going on in sweden has been covered over here and how people react to it there's a a huge desire it's palpable for sweden to fail mm. everyone wants sweden to melt into the bowels of the earth with disease and they're going to be punished you know because they haven't done what everyone else is doing and they they don't get the message and they'll be sorry 
And any suggestion that Swedish death rates are higher than other people's is, is reported with great relish. And one of the things that you need to keep an eye on is the reliability with which Swedish deaths are always reported in the context of other Scandinavian countries. Because if you put Swedish deaths in the context of everybody else, they're just in the middle, right? In terms of deaths per 100,000. So it's a rigging of the conversation. It's a rigging of statistics to make the Swedes look as bad as possible. And again, this is about being invested in the lockdown strategy. So everyone wants the lockdowns to be worthwhile. It's kind of understandable if they've happened already. No one wants to think that you have done this horrible thing to your country for no reason. Hmm. So if Sweden gets away with it, everybody's going to be furious. And there is going to be a lot of effort made to make it look as if Sweden was different from us. Or, you know, there was some element there that explained why they didn't have to lock down. And there's going to be a big effort to make it look as if it was somehow a catastrophe because that's what everyone's doing now. You're listening to The Brendan O'Neill Show. Subscribe now so that you never miss an episode. And it would be great if you could give us a rating and maybe even a review. That is a really good way to help new listeners discover the show. As you say, it is palpable that the you know the, the the wishing that Sweden fails is is a very palpable and grotesque phenomenon right now. J- just on the new normal, the other the other thing that strikes me about the new normal, about this chilling phrase, is the question of how new it is. Because I think one of the interesting things about the moment we're living through is the extent to which pre-existing cultural trends and pre-existing narratives have been speeded up or catalyzed or exacerbated by the current moment. So one thing that I keep thinking, if anyone says, I think we should have more freedom now, I think people should be allowed to go back to the pubs, you will be told straight away that all you want is the freedom to infect other people. And it struck me that actually the view of freedom as infectious or toxic has been around, in fact, for quite a long time. You know, the idea that certain speech is toxic. You, Lionel, will have given many speeches that will have been described by people as toxic and dangerous. We hear about toxic relationships, the toxic ideas behind Brexit. And of course, there is the whole safe space phenomenon, the notion that it is possible to force field people from every difficult idea or every misfortune in life. So uh, I wanted to ask you, because you've written extensively on on lots of these themes, to what extent do you think the new normal is actually the old normal, but just psyched up to an extraordinary degree? There certainly are some connections between the trends previous to this calamity. By the way, calamity. When I say calamity, I never refer to the disease itself. Mm, mm. I think one of the things that distresses me about this whole social distancing phenomenon, uh, it's another phrase that I've come to detest, is that it encourages a tendency that was there before and that may not be expressly to do with the broad present, but is a direction we can always go psychologically in relation to other people in general. And that is you know, we need each other to survive. Very few of us could be thrown in the middle of the woods and live for very long without anybody else. But we're also each other's competitors and antagonists. And that's a complex relationship to other people. That's It's in, intrinsically kind of weird. And you have to keep negotiating with these tendencies, often on even on an individual level. You know, you meet a stranger. Is this person you know, one of your people, <laughs> or is this person an antagonist? And of course, that's where the, the, the political context in which COVID arose is pertinent because we were already in an incredibly polarized political time. Mm. So that negotiation over whether or not someone is on your side or not, one of your own people, part of your tribe, or the enemy is 
is something we do already, but now we're extending that notion of who the enemy is into the realm of disease. Everyone is not only carrying potentially toxic opinions, but they could literally kill you. Mm. Even if on a statistical level, this is not true most of the time, but we are now being coached to regard anyone else, including our friends, right? Even, even the people we know, much less strangers, as sources of lethal contagion. People are to be avoided. Socializing has become a form of evil. Mm. And even this whole experience of queuing up at a supermarket and staying two meters apart from everyone, I find it really upsetting. Mm. It's such an ugly way to relate to people. And I have noticed in those cues, people don't talk to each other. Mm. And that's shocking. Here you are involved in this communal weird thing, right? And usually when there's some communal weird thing, the barriers between strangers are broken down. Mm. I mean, I I was in New York after 9-11. And one of the only nice things about that experience was people talk to each other. Strangers talk to each other. Strangers smile to each other on the street. Mm. People at checkout talk to the men and women uh, at the till. It was nice. It was warm. It felt like being in a place that others were sharing with each other rather than being somewhere where everyone was sort of putting up with each other. Mm. It was touching. And this is the absolute opposite of that. This is suddenly even ordinary interchanges I spend a lot of time alone. I actually find going out and buying something, something of a relief because however nominally I get to interact with somebody. And now even those small interactions are very cold. Yeah, It's not just the masks and the gloves. People don't smile at each other. They're very wary and often just actively hostile. Yeah. And it's a horrible, horrible world to be living in. And it just gives me the willies that we're now being told, well, you know, that may be the world for the indefinite future. Now we're now going to force you to think of all other human beings as the enemy, that you are to be hostile to them. You are to avoid touching them. You must not come near them. And, you know, that does translate emotionally. It, It isn't just you avoid them physically. It becomes an attitude. We are being educated to be misanthropes. Absolutely. I think that's, that's an excellent way of putting it. And I, I keep thinking about, you know, those people who are, you know, not necessarily well connected online, maybe don't have that many friends or family members, you know, the kind of people for whom a trip to the shop or a trip to the pub was actually incredibly important. So in, in some of the pubs near where I live, um, the only people you would see in there during the day would be old men, often sitting on their own with a newspaper and a pint. And it was their moment of connection with the world. They would have, you know, maybe a short conversation with a barman. They would read their paper. They would be in the world. And I find myself wondering what has become of those people because they and so many others are now completely shut away, have no form of engagement and and the social consequences of that, I think people aren't considering at all. I think the kind of person you're describing, uh, should this carry on, is likely to die early. Mm. That's that's what happens. Uh, we are social creatures. I sometimes have to remind myself that I'm a social creature. <laughs> you know, I even notice that uh, when uh, when the phone rings, or even when I'm doing an interview like this. I become a ridiculous chatterbox. <laughs> I do have my husband to talk to. I have at least that, but there, there's something builds up in me that it, that is almost explosive when it, it finds an outlet. Mm. And we need each other, and we can't keep living like this, and we can't give over to government the right to tell us we have to keep living like this. And I, I'm really, I'm horrified that we have abdicated the right to, you know, free association to the government. A couple of final questions. I want to ask you about treason, because you have said that criticizing the lockdown and criticizing the reaction to COVID-19 is being treated almost as treasonous. There's two things I wanted to ask you about that. Firstly, if you could just describe some of the flack you have had about things that you have said, but also... Surely in a moment like this, when society is doing historically unprecedented and potentially 
very, very damaging things. Freedom of speech, the right to treason, the right to dissent become more important than ever, but it feels like they're under threat more than they have been for quite a long time. Well, the the one thing that has cheered me is the emergence of uh, a few very brave voices in the media who are willing to issue a counter narrative. It does take bravery because nobody wants to hear it. The only people who want to hear it are fellow lockdown skeptics. I mean, I think Toby Young's uh, lockdown skeptics website is doing a huge public service at great cost to himself. I mean, it's obviously taking him a huge amount of time. The amount of text he's generating on a daily basis is astonishing. And it's not just the text itself, but he's linking all these different sources of information and new interviews and new uh, scientists and uh, new data, real facts, and trying to collate it in one place. He's doing what the rest of the media is not doing. And there are there are other um, interviews on YouTube. They are available, and, but it distresses me that we have to go looking for them so hard. It's a very small community of people who are at least saying, hold on here. Let's look at this twice. Is this is this lockdown really worth the candle? Mm. And who are even calling attention to what it means when you talk about, you know, economic decline. I mean, who are not blithe about it. And what do you think is is the cause of that conformism? I mean, in some senses this is this could also be seen as a hangover from the pre-COVID era. You know, we weren't living in the most healthily free open-minded society in history prior to coronavirus. But do you think there's an element of fear? There's an element of not wanting to be seen to buck the trend? Or is it more sinister than that? Have significant sections of the intellectual classes bought into the notion that social life and economic life must be entirely frozen in response to a new virus? Well, you know, history is full of whole populations getting with the program. (laughs) That's what they do they become convinced that it is in their self-interest not to buck the system. Some of that is fear. And then there's something else going on, which is beyond fear. It is a natural herd instinct that some people have and some people don't. And I can tell you right now, I don't have it. I never have it. And that's why I constantly get myself into so much trouble. So this herd instinct is very strong. And you see whole countries just go off the edge of a cliff Mm. and nobody stops it. I mean, I, I, I realize references to World War II are terribly trying. <laughs> but, you know, look at what happened with Nazi Germany. It wasn't just that everyone was afraid. Some of them were afraid and some of them capitulated to the way you were supposed to be now because they were worried what would happen to them if they didn't. So there's an element of that. But there clearly was a, another larger element of people just saying, you know, oh, I guess that's the way, the way we're supposed to be now. They don't have whatever it takes, you know, to look at something twice and say, well, I'm being told to do that, or this is the new normal, if you will. Um, but does it have to be? Do I approve of it? Does it make sense? Is it moral? Is it best for the society as a whole? Maybe I don't think this is a good idea. Mm-hmm. It takes a certain kind of person. And I'm afraid there's something about the better part of the human race that doesn't have the instinct to question doing what the rest of the herd is doing. It just doesn't have it. Mm. And it's, it's depressing. The final thing I want to ask you is about death. And uh, I, th- this is not because I want to end on a depressing note, but you have spoken about the reality of death and and one figure that you have mentioned is that 600,000 british people died last year that is how life works death is a part of life that figure did not make the headlines yes of course so and it's not news it's it's you know it, it it's what happens but i think it's the current discussion and the current moment is very interesting from this almost naivety about death and this unwillingness to accept that people die from diseases and viruses and old age. And it's incredibly sad for that 
person's family and their friends, but it is also a central part of life. And it sounds almost too obvious a point to make, but there is an element of this discussion, I think, where there's this, I don't know if it springs from the culture of safetyism or risk aversion or this uh, juvenile notion that life should be, you know, one long, happy, uninterrupted experience where no one ever offends you or hurts you or impacts on you in a detrimental way. I don't know if that's what is driving this, but there does seem to be a naivety about the reality of life and the reality of death. Do you think that's contributing to the current apocalyptic headlines we are seeing about what might in previous eras have been considered a fairly routine response to a novel virus? I agree. I think that there has something has happened in the West particularly, and then the rest of the world tends to ape the same attitudes in relation to death. Most of us do not get exposed to death very much anymore. Uh, it used to be that people died at home, mm -hmm. and you would see your grandparents die. They would die in the house. It might take a little while for the body to be taken away, and people died more often, right, mm -hmm. and younger. So it was much more folded into your experience of life and, and therefore mortality was, it was woven into your day in a way. Mm. It isn't anymore. People tend to die off in hospital or off in care homes and it, it becomes an abstraction. And no, most people would claim that, of course, they don't believe that people live forever, but that's become abstract rather than up in your face. And meanwhile, we keep seeming to believe that science can cure everything, that medicine can cure everything. And it's not a big leap. By the way, when you find out anything about medicine or anything goes wrong with you, you find out how much medicine cannot cure, mm. like practically everything. It's in a much more primitive stage than we like to think. But it's comforting to believe that medicine can pretty much cure anything. And it's a very short leap to imagining that medicine can cure death. And there seems to be a new indignation in relation to death now. It's as if it's an immoral outrage, and it's unfair and unjust that there's no such thing as, well, it was his or her time, right? Mm -hmm. Well, he or she has lived a good life. We don't refer to death as the inevitable anymore. So, I think maybe this is connected. There's also a kind of statistical naivete amongst the public. We don't talk about mortality very much. We certainly don't talk about mortality figures very much. You could count on one hand the number of people in London who might be able to volunteer the fact that 58 million people died last year in the world, right? One of them is me because I looked it up. <laughs> <laughs> but I think you're right. It's not just that these numbers are not up in face. It's the experience of death. It's not a part of our lives anymore. It's still happening on a massive scale, but somehow constantly out of view. And COVID-19 has put it in view so that we're constantly having these interviews on the news with people, you know, perhaps gasping some of their last breaths. It's very frightening to look at. It's impossible to depersonalize anymore. It's not happening off somewhere else. It's right in our living rooms. And the truth is we could be doing these interviews on the news, chaka, mm. with people dying all the time. But now we're watching it. And it seems like, well, this is this is a this is a terrible injustice. This is a natural calamity. But it, if you look at the numbers, it's not. This is just more nature taking its course. Mm. We have to learn to live with it. And we have, we have to learn to live with it in a larger sense than COVID-19. We have to get more mature about the fact that we're going to die. Mm. I mean, the book I'm working on right now is actually all about this. And it's, it's really looking about our seemingly infinite extension of life expectancy and whether that's a good idea. Mm. So, we seem to be wanting to push the on envelope as far as possible, whereas what we're really doing is extending death, not extending life. But we're not asking these questions because we're not comfortable with death. We really have stopped believing that people should die. 
that, you know, that's some kind of glitch in the universe, some kind of little thing that people are going to sort out. And somehow this worldwide hysteria is connected with that. Mm. What I find, I think, most mystifying in this whole thing, in some ways I, I can reason a little bit how the West has reacted because of some of the elements we're talking about. I really do not understand why the developing world is is doing the same thing because it's even more destructive. You know, it's, it's it potentially could kill millions of people, these lockdowns in India and Africa. So that's where my understanding just stops. Lina Shriver, thank you very much. I really enjoyed talking to you. Thank you. Thank you for listening to The Brendan O'Neill Show. We'll be back with another guest and more discussion. Don't forget to subscribe. And in the meantime, keep reading Spiked at www.spiked-online.com.